Hi, hello, this is Kevin. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ten Frame. The next 10 or 12 episodes will be conversations between myself, Kelly, and other Georgia-based artists who are showing their work at the MoCA Gathered Six show. In this episode, Rachel Garceau and I spent a few minutes before the opening reception of this Gathered Six show, and we're able to talk a little bit about her work, and I really enjoyed speaking with her. She's really passionate, knowledgeable about her craft, and if you want to see more of her work, you can follow her on Instagram at rachelk.garceau, or if you want to see some of my work, go follow me on Instagram at kevinwillpaint. And lastly, follow Kelly. He's on Instagram also at Kelly K Thompson Art. I hope you enjoyed the show. Yeah, so we're sitting in one of the gallery spaces at the MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Georgia. Um, and we both were selected to be part of the Gathered Six show, um, which is a, I'm pretty excited to be part of this show. But, um, we're going to talk a little bit to Rachel about um, her piece that is, is installed into the show. So what's the title of it? What's your medium that you work in? And just tell us what you, what do you do? Yeah. Um, so the title of this piece is scale cascade. So it's from a larger piece that was installed at white space gallery this spring. And nice. it was a full room installation. Um, what size room? It was like, we, we built a room inside a room. We mm -hmm. built an oval room inside a rectangular room to house this piece. And it was, I think, seven feet wide and 11 feet long, but in an elliptical shape. Um, and, uh, and a low ceiling. We built in a ceiling just to make the space super clean and, and neat. And so the ceiling sloped from about seven feet down to about five and a half feet. Um, so it was a real sort of cozy, almost like womb-like space. So I used those images to apply for this exhibition. And um, so the pieces are all porcelain and they are, um, uh, there are some, several pieces that are just like the raw porcelain color. And then um, I stained the porcelain using mason stains to create this grayscale. Um, so one of the references to scale being grayscale. And so um, in applying to the show, I used the images from the full room installation and just sort of hoped that the jurors would be able to just envision a different mm -hmm. presentation of that piece in a space that was designated. I mean, that's just kind of what I referenced in the application that I can just build it into any space they give me. And it's just a really fun opportunity working modularly like this, all mm -hmm. these like, like hundreds of units. Yeah. Um, so just to be able to say, um, just give me a space and I'll create something with these pieces there. So I, I'm a painter. My background is in architecture, painting, and I also do installation work. Um, and I, Embarrassingly, I don't really know much about porcelain. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about the material and maybe um, why you enjoy using it? 
Yes, I could talk for um, Good. <laughs> a long time about that. I'm, um, I really like the more and more I work with the material and the more I learn from it, the sort of kind of more I love it. And um, it's really a soft clay, right? So it is um, basically it's a clay that mm. does not have iron in it. And so um, uh, iron gives clay its like red or brown mm. color. So with the absence of iron, the clay is white uh-huh. so it's um there it's uh kaolin is like the base material and it's can be um a river deposit or can be mined as well okay um and it's it also what makes it different than most clays is that it doesn't have a grog like a sandy tooth to it it's extremely smooth it's like a very fine um so if you were to be say you're throwing on the potter's wheel you would, if you're working with most clays, they've got some sort of grit in it. So as you're throwing, you can kind of like grab onto that tooth as you pull. And I remember the first time like in college uh, trying to throw porcelain. It was like the the closest I could say is it's like trying to throw jello. It's just wow. like very soft, mm-hmm. um, like very... Um, there's no friction or there's no grit or tooth. No, yeah, there's you're no saying. tooth. There's yeah. sort of like nothing to grab hold of. Right. Um, yeah. Um, but the way that I use porcelain for the most part, primarily in my work now, is through slip casting. So I, um, I make plaster molds, and then the porcelain in the way that I use it is called slip, and mm-hmm. it's, it basically, it feels like a watered down clay. It's sort of like the consistency of, um, really thin yogurt or really heavy cream, mm-hmm. somewhere in that. And, um, But what's interesting about slip, what is fascinating to me about slip, is that even though it's like this fluid, it's in motion, it actually has the same proportion of dry material to water as a clay that you would use for hand building or for wheel throwing. Explain that. So so when making slip, you add... uh, material called a defloculant, which sort of like changes the... Don't ask me to spell that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it essentially changes the charge of the particles of Mm. the clay, and so they're lining up with each other rather than being sort of perpendicular to one another. And so there's like more space for the water to flow around the particles, thus the material flows. Okay. Um, And so it's sort of, it's like very magical to me in that way that it's it's just very transformative. And so that allows... um, the plaster mold to do its job, which is to then pull water content out of the slip to create a thin wall of clay inside the mold. So they're hollow, the pieces? The pieces are hollow. So the, I guess for the audience, the pieces that we're referring to, I don't, we can talk about more about your other work, but the stuff that's at the mocha, they're pebble-looking, round, river, rock-looking mm-hmm. material, mm-hmm. oval-shaped with... Um, depth to them mm-hmm. and they range from maybe two inches to 18 inches and yeah. in, in diameter something like that Roughly, yep. but they're hollow they're hollow oh, okay yeah so they're sort of like you know they're sort of like pillowy yeah things. good word yeah yeah so yeah they have volume uh-huh. um, but hot but they're hollow yeah okay so are they fragile they're extremely fragile well you were throwing them on the ground like not <laughs> throwing so, them but okay like, so <laughs> 
clarify. Okay, so like I said, primarily I'm working with Slipcast. Uh, um, the, the, the smallest ones, uh, ones are made by hand using clay, porcelain clay. Okay. And so they are solid. And yeah, they're only, they're like two inches and they're like, you know, half an inch gotcha. thick. So those are sense. solid. Yeah. So yes, I can throw those around. <laughs> yeah, you weren't throwing them, but they definitely weren't. Like yeah. mom's china or yeah. finest, you yeah. know. Um, well, but that's one of the things, I mean, to get back to what it is, the things that I love about porcelain, I mean, there's something, like I said, just so sort of luscious, um, about the material itself. It's sort of like, I think about, you know, when you read about how Van Gogh like ate his paint or something, which I don't think was true. I think he just sort of like licked his paintbrushes clean or like to get the bristles back together. But anyway, that sort of like legend of like Van Gogh, like eating his paint. It's sort of like, I kind of understand that to be like so taken by the material to just yeah. be like, want to like touch it and handle it. And I do not eat it. Right. <laughs> I probably ate mud, if I was being honest, when I was a kid. <laughs> Everyone those... didn't eat clay when they were a kid. Yeah, or Play-Doh. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, there's also... Um, so like you said, it's very fragile. After it's fired, it's very fragile. Before it's fired, it's extraordinarily fragile when, when these pieces, especially because they're cast, so they can be really thin, uh, much thinner than something that's hand-built or, or wheel-thrown typically. Um, and so when, before they're fired, when they're bone dry, we call it bone dry, mm -hmm. which is basically just like air dried. They, I mean, you could just like the slightest bit of pressure would just like collapse these things to crumbs. And okay. so there's this, um, way of being with the material, this way of being in the studio that demands a certain type of like real clear attention and, um, just a, a gentleness, a softness when, when dealing with it. And so that also is true in, uh, the, when the pieces are finished, there's still the subtlety that has to exist when handling them. And so I think about this quote by, um, Rollo May, who's, uh, you know, a, a psychologist and a thinker, writer, lecturer, and he, compiled a bunch of essays and lectures into a book called Courage to Create. And mm -hmm. in that book, he talks about uh, the different types of courage, so you have physical courage, emotional courage, social courage. And when he talks about social courage, he talks about how um, in order to enter a relationship with somebody, you need to, if you're going to fully enter a relationship, he says, with another human, you need to know at the onset that you're both going to be changed just by nature of being in relationship with one another. You know, he says it's like a chemical mixture. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like, as an artist, I think about that, like he's clearly talking a human to human relationship as an artist though. I really think about that, like our relationship with our material and how it's easy to really think like, I'm, you know, I'm the human, I'm the master, I'm in charge. I am, right. I am affecting my material, making it do what I want it to do. Mm -hmm. But if you like listen in and are like really more in relationship with your material, with what's happening in the studio, you start to learn back from your material. It starts to teach back to you. And yeah. so I feel like one of the lessons that I learn by working with porcelain is that there's, it's, there's a necessity to be 
gentle. Right, and patience. And like, yes, all of those things. Um, do you do you make your do you find your own porcelain, or do you ever go out in the river or whatever and get yes. your own material? There, I I do not. Okay, I do not. There are there is like a pretty large kaolin deposit in Georgia. Okay, but I will confess that I get my kaolin from England. Okay, no, and it's just what I've been using for you know like. 12 years or something and so I'm, I just sort of like stick with what I know I did I did have this experiment with some um, material from New Zealand that was actually it's actually not kaolin but it behaves like kaolin it's this volcanic deposit mm-hmm. that suspends in water in the same way that clay does and it's super 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 translucent and so I kind of like ran down that rabbit hole a little bit for a while, but I returned to England. <laughs> you know what you like, so that's yeah. good. Yeah, but I do I do mix the slip in the studio. So I, it's um, three ingredients. It's a silica feldspar and then the kaolin. So I'd get all the dry materials and mix the slip in the studio. So it's it's so I mix it to like the consistency, the specific gravity that I want and right. like that so I can be a lot in control of yeah. exactly what's happening. Okay, so the scale that we're, that we're looking at or that we have looked at in the MOCA is bigger than life in my mind. It's larger than human scale. Mm-hmm. It's maybe like 12 or 15 12, feet. 12 feet. Yeah, yeah, by... It's in a corner. It's displayed in a corner maybe four or five feet on either side. Yeah, four feet in each direction. Um, so what size of installation is most comfortable or more, most enjoyable? Do you like smaller, intimate pieces or like a bigger than life? Yeah, I, um, well, I want people to be like surrounded by the material in whatever way that means. I think what's interesting to me, and I'll, I'll just be curious uh, this afternoon during the reception to just observe. I mean, that's my favorite thing to do is just sit back and watch people interact with the work. Mm-hmm. And um, the piece that was at White Space, it was, there were two rooms. So the first room had these sort of rectangular, um, linear, like really regular uh, wall pieces and tiles. And then the second room had these old, was you know, like elliptical shaped and had these sort of oval pillows. And so I only allowed one person in at a time because the space was really like intimate and delicate. And I really wanted people to have a personal experience to mm-hmm. not be like chatting with their friend or like taking pictures of each other. But, and of course, I mean, I don't mind that. Um, I think that's fun. And that if, if someone's going to take a selfie, it means that there's something about it that they're, that they're drawn to. So, yeah. Um, but I couldn't see people in that space cause it was two rooms in, um, so I didn't really get to observe a lot. So I actually really loved seeing pictures that people were taking in there because it was showing me how they were experiencing it. Mm-hmm. And because the ceiling was low, some people would like sit or they would lie down. Like the whole floor was covered in those smaller pebbles that you can stand on or sit on or lay down on. And so there was, um, was sort of, I think, had a very sort of like womb-like feel to it, this very sort of like space is kind of holding you. Mm-hmm. And so I had that intimacy in that way. And, um, this piece I've 
invited viewers through a little bit of signage to take off their shoes and step onto the pebbles that are on the floor and to really kind of be as kind of embraced by the piece as possible in, in the position that it's in. And, but I think, um, the getting in really close and then gazing up and having it sort of is like, I mean, it's, so it's scale and then cascade, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of like the subtitle to this one and have it sort of like pouring down just to sort of witness that. And even just Annette stepping into it yesterday, just to witness her scale, you know, she's not six feet tall. So the piece is twice as tall as her. Um, so just to, Uh, yeah, yeah. To, to support what we were talking about, um, while we were standing in front of the work, you mentioned that you initially were going to have the darker tones towards the ground and the ground or the, the floor in the mocha is like this, I don't know, 75% gray-ish, maybe 60 or something like that. Um, but you decided last minute to flip it. Mm -hmm. And now I think to support cas Cascade, it's right. the darker going to light, I think that feels good yeah, too, yeah, right? Yeah, it does. And that, I mean, that's something too that I love about working so much in an environment is that was in my mind how I was going to do it. But then I arrived here and I was like, Oh no, it's got to be something yeah. different. And so I really do respond a lot to an environment, like whatever my preconception was of what I was right. going to do was like easy to change, um, in, in, um, yeah, in response to the environment. Yeah. Okay. So, I'll ask a few things, maybe not uh, associated with your work. Yeah. The, um, where did you grow up, and does that even matter with the work that you make? <laughs> you know, is it? Yeah, um, I grew up in Connecticut, in mm -hmm. very rural, um, sort of like Appalachian foothills, um, less than two thousand people, like no traffic lights, no gas stations, yeah. just like super rural and. Um, And it is a good question to think about if that has anything to do with the work that I make now. Well, I can just, in the few minutes that I've spent with you, I would say it does in regards of um, you're making work that's intense, like your alone time, you know? And I would, from being in a rural community, maybe there's also alone time, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm not afraid to be alone. <laughs> yeah, same. This yeah. podcast is definitely um, me exploring not being in a comfort zone, you yeah. know? Um, yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I guess in, in one way I could say that growing up in an environment like that and just taking the backyard and the woods as my play place yeah. and where I spent time and just being really comfortable in nature and, um, just that sort of curiosity and imagination that comes through when mm -hmm. you're a kid playing yeah. in the woods, you know, all the, me and my brother and my sister and my cousins would have all these like characters that would live in the forest that we would encounter and just, yeah. you know, things like that. And so I think there is definitely a lot of my work is, inspired or in reflection to mm -hmm. nature that I see now. And so there is probably something in there about having that in kind of like in my bones from yeah. childhood. What about music or what do you, what's going on in the studio? Is there music, podcasts, silence? 
all of the above in whatever feels appropriate at okay. the time. It's definitely, there's a, it's a lot of silence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really depends. There are so many different parts of this process. So there's, of course, like the, um, the generation of idea and the drawings mm-hmm. and the, that sort of thing. And that's typically pretty quiet time because it's like, I'm, yeah. I'm listening in. And then there's the um, original sculpting, and that's a time where music can come in a lot mm-hmm. because it is more it's more free flowing sort of. And um, I definitely have soundtracks for different projects. Like I can, I was working on these um, this the first sort of like really deeply botanical piece that I'd ever done, which was based on a dahlia. So I was making all these flower petals. And so I had like Georgia O'Keeffe books all around. I was listening to like Cher and Madonna and Billie Eilish. It was just like power women. Yeah. Like I just felt like I needed all, like a lot of feminine energy around Taylor me at the no. time. No, no, don't go there. <laughs> no, uh, no, oh, okay. no, not, you know, no offense. It just wasn't in the, wasn't in the feeling at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but then the mold making process is like, there's a lot of math. There's a lot of like time sensitivity and things like that. So again, that gets, gets into like really quiet time because mm-hmm. I'm like calculating and I'm measuring and I'm timing and I'm just like really need to have that silence. Um, and then when it comes to the casting, that's really, it's really, um, it's labor essentially. I mean, it's repetitive. Yeah. labor you're yeah. just pouring slip in and you're pouring it out and you're doing it over you're and, over and over and over again or you're making yes you're like factory yes total factory and so that's when i would listen to like I, I, my attention can totally go so i can listen to podcasts and i can mm-hmm. listen to things like that so it's kind of like the flow and i have an assistant who works with me usually about two days a week and so we usually when we're working together we usually are just in conversation you know yeah yeah good can you talk about maybe the routine that you have set for yourself to seek out more work or in new installation work? Yeah. Um, I don't know if routine is quite uh, mm-hmm. the word because it's all kind of, I have to say that a lot of how I work and kind of live my life is I... I see where I'm going in the distance and I just start walking there mm-hmm. and hope that the road will meet me. And, um, I've been, I mean, I would knock on wood, but hopefully you know, I've been really fortunate yeah. in a lot of ways. So, so to put that into the context of, of what you asked, I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll just, have an idea. I'll see a thing. I'll be inspired or I'll be kind of obsessed or I'll be curious and I'll just start making stuff without knowing where it's going or if it's going anywhere or, you know, I'll just sort of start making. And, um, and then there might be, you know, there might be a call for, you know, sort of long-term installation in a space something, something. And I'm like, okay, well, this might be my opportunity. So you send the application out and then you don't get it. But then like mm-hmm. something else, then someone calls you and they're like, Hey, do you want to do this thing? And so mm-hmm. I think it's, it's all, 
it's I don't have a recipe for it and but um, you're active the recipe is you're you're working you have your work ethic which is strong and you're constantly finding opportunity you're when you hear about something you immediately react to it and try to try to get something right and then or it's you know because I'm I have ideas in process then I get a call for a studio visit and so someone comes in and and they're seeing what I'm doing and then they and then it builds into a a possibility whether it's a public art project or a gallery exhibition or um, you know a piece of museum or whatever it is but there's definitely it is a balance for me at this stage in my career um, between actively pursuing like you know like this for example mm-hmm. i don't really apply to a lot of juried shows yeah but this one um and i reached out to some friends who have been in this show in past years and just to say like how was that was yeah. your experience and i got a really a lot of really positive feedback for it so it's like okay let's, let's do, do it let's do it yeah. um and but it is a, a combination of actively applying and sort of being approached and so i guess from an emerging artist perspective mm-hmm. it's like i would say it is important to apply to all those jury shows because that's the first step in people seeing you and knowing that you exist right. um no one's going to come knocking for a solo show yeah. <laughs> if you if you're just sitting alone in your studio and not meeting people and not getting the work out mm-hmm. so i think that's a good first step i think that Meeting more and more people through things like doing residencies is like the networking that happens in residencies, even if it's just a week or two somewhere um, where you're meeting people from other places and in other media and other backgrounds. That's a really smart way to build your network and, and amazing things can happen from there. I mean, I know like a group that was at the Hambridge Center altogether. There were eight of them. And then, you know, nine months later, they had a group show of those eight artists who were at Hambridge. They just were like, found this real deep harmony in what they were all doing and, and had a show together. And, um, but yeah, just those sort of opportunities of just getting to meet people. and Right. So another big, I don't know if it's a piece of advice, but... Um, just speaking from my own personal experience and my own journey, I think it's really important to talk to people who are maybe finishing their undergrad or um, thinking about furthering their education in some way. I have a BA in fine art, and then I knew I knew that I was at a place where I needed something more. Like I needed a little bit deeper knowledge of material and methods. Um, And I felt like if I were to go back to school, it would have had to have been specifically in ceramics because that was where I had like the most breadth of knowledge in my work. And I just felt like I wasn't quite there. I wasn't quite committed in that way. And so I ended up applying to the core fellowship program at Penland School in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so it's a two-year fellowship where nine people uh, have access to take workshops there. So it's a workshop-based program, typically mostly in the summer, two-week workshops, 
instructors come from all over the country to just drop in, spend two weeks teaching. There That's are, cool. um, it's very cool. Yeah. So there are studios, um, for clay, glass, blacksmithing, small metal smithing, weaving, bookmaking, painting, drawing, print making, everything, everything, right. every like, craft. Um, and so I decided that I would try to do that because I could broaden my knowledge of material and then have sort of like a larger toolbox to pull from when I had an idea. Yeah. It didn't have to be in clay. And at that time I was working wheel throwing and hand building at that time. I hadn't learned mold making yet and I learned mold making at Penland. And so that kind of ironically with all those workshops, I learned mold making from one of my roommates, Bob Biddlestone, who was at SCAD for a while. Okay. Um, and it's so funny. We, we kind of have this joke now because I was like, I just want to make this one little mold. And then, and now, you know, 12 years later, he's like, I didn't know I was going to create a monster. Like, it was just like this mold making. That's the pivot. That's the fulcrum or whatever in your career, I would say, yeah, right? Absolutely. The turning point. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it was all the other, you know, learning woodworking and metalworking and all this like more fine tooling and, so being able to create original forms out of other materials mm -hmm. and then make the mold. So like out of wool plaster or wood or, you know, found objects too, of course, but just learning, having more skills to build out of other materials and to get into greater detail and um, more kind of fine tuning and tooling and then make the mold and then turn it back into porcelain. It's sort of like, kind of like to call myself the Midas of porcelain. So it's like you hand me anything and I can make a mold and turn it into yeah. porcelain. You know, nice. like that. So that was where the process at least started. Was that that residency? Mm -hmm. Yeah, fellowship. Yeah. The fellowship. fellowship. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the future? Mm. The future, yes. Do you have any like materials that you want to explore or are there shows that um, you hope to be a part of or I don't know, yeah. travel? It could yes. be anything, yeah. you know? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to put it out there in a big way. I'm going to like say the things in hopes that yeah. some, something will hear. But I, um, because I'm, you know, really exploring this space of this relationship with material and how it affects me, like I talked about earlier. There's also the the real, like the deepest curiosity that I have right now in my practice is: does that translate to the viewer? Does the viewer have that same experience mm -hmm. when they aren't making with the material, but when they're experiencing the material? So that's why, like making these sort of room size installations of this material that has. I mean, you hear porcelain like the first thing you think is like delicate, right? Yeah. Like you think like a little teacup or right. a little something. I mean, the reality is toilets are made of porcelain, tiles are made of porcelain. So we're sitting on it, we're walking on it. It's just all, it just has, it's so diverse. It's just how, what the application is. Cause yes, right. it can be thin and it can be a teacup and it can be very delicate, but it can be a little bit thicker and it can be a tile and you can, it can hold, it can support your weight. So it's, it's both and, but typically in a, if you walk into a room and all the walls are covered in porcelain, you're going to like, you're going to likely pause, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to likely 
get a little slower. You're going to likely get a little quieter. You're going to likely just take a little more time. It changes the energy more. in a space. I mean, if you're surrounded by material, I have an installation um, in Savannah currently up at Studio 10 um, at Sulphur Studios. It's a uh, space in downtown Savannah. But we put felt on everywhere, mm. the ceiling and the walls, black felt in a seven by seven by seven foot space. Um, and it radically just the energy we've changed the life of that space, yeah. you know? So, so I agree with what you're saying. Like if you, if you're not putting or having that mindset, then maybe it's similar to you saying, you know, nobody's going to get a solo, give you a solo show if you're not going out there and actively seeking it, you know? Right. So I don't know. I, I hope you get there. Yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> I'm right with you. you. Like, my goal is PS1. And that's like, yeah. People look at me like I'm crazy whenever I talk about I really, really want to be a part of that, you know? Well, I mean, people are, right? Right. And we're people. Artists are in there. We're people and we're artists. It's just not yet. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's the thing, too. It's just there. What's that quote that's like, uh, something about like inspiration versus work, you know, it's just like you can sit around all day and wait for inspiration to hit, or you can just like walk in the studio and get the hell to work. Yeah. And just, just do it. Do it. Yeah. And, um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think too, there are, there are so many like for emerging artists, there are so many opportunities. There are so many grants and, um, exhibitions and fellowships for emerging artists and it's it's a matter of just like getting out there and applying I used to every January so that was kind of my my routine yeah. was every January I would just take like two weeks off of working in the studio and I would just like line up all the applications and for like residencies or whatever it was um, and I did that for a number of years and I would just sort of like take those couple of weeks in January to kind of set my put put things out there to kind of get my year set right um but i think i mean i think truly there's questionably more of those sorts of opportunities for specifically tailored to emerging artists Mm -hmm. than like mid-career artists in terms of the things that you can apply for so as an emerging artist i think that you are wise to seek out specific things for emerging artists yeah. and just apply, apply, apply and get rejected, I know. get rejected a million times. I mean, it still hurt. Like it still hurts. I actually, sometimes I think it's, um, it's karma because I worked in, uh, the admissions office, like right after college, one of my, like I worked for a potter part-time and then mm-hmm. I had a couple of like part-time arts admin jobs yeah. and one of them was working in the admissions office at a artist residency program and we had like a little like this little cartoon on the door that was like the rejection show yeah and because we would get thousands of applications and you could only accept 80 yeah. people and i mean i was i was just fi- i was like filing i wasn't making any of this decisions or anything like that but um but i kind of you know, I mailed, that was in the, that was back in the days of like, you put your application in the mail with your slides and wow, <laughs> like, yeah. so I'm dating myself. Yeah. But, um, and then you were like, 
folding and stuffing all the rejection letters. And so I have folded and stuffed thousands of rejection letters in my life. And so right. I feel like it's and received them and too, received right? them. And now I receive them. Yeah. yeah. Same. So I try not to dig it. And you know, another thing that I've really learned over time is like, I learned a lot, um, when I worked at unnamed <laughs> residency program. Yeah. Um, and then I've had so many opportunities. Um, I did manage a craft gallery for a few years, also in my mid-20s. And so having those experiences has really helped me when I'm putting applications together. Um, and so I, I would encourage, I mean, likely if you're an emerging artist, you probably need to have a supporting job or something mm-hmm. and and to you know waitressing jobs are also great because um, they're quick easy money but to get into some arts admin where you're really learning the other side of it right. and that it helps you learn how to tailor what um, your application looks like based on whether it's applying to a gallery whether it's applying to a residency whether it's you know applying what to the level of professional grand. like the level of professionalism what does that look like amongst your peers that you're submitting work with, right? Is that right. What yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and so something that I've learned too, because in some of the longer term, you know, I did the two-year fellowship at Penland. I did a one-year residency at Aramont School in Tennessee. And so in those programs, the the exiting fellows or residents were invited to participate in the selection process for the incoming. Mm-hmm. And so I also got to see cool. it from that end. And, and, um, and one of the things that I've learned, uh, just, which sort of helps kind of curb the, the pain of, uh, of the rejection is there's, it's not about you. It's about you within the other group of people. So it's like you never know who else is applying for a thing and just where you fall in that because, and so the moral of that is apply again sure, and apply again and apply again to the same thing. So it took me two years, like I applied twice before I got into Penland. Mm -hmm. Um, There are shows that I, like Mocha has a working artist project grant Mm -hmm. and I apply every year, (laughs) you know, it's just like one of those things that. And that's what everyone says, like, oh, yeah, it took me three years before I or this or that. And so it's just, you just never up. know. Don't give up. And you never know, like, jurors change and the pool changes and your work changes. Sure. And and you learn from the application that you did last year what you maybe need to do differently. And you often don't get a lot of personalized feedback. Mm-hmm. But you can kind of put the pieces together. And then you see, oh, who did get that award or who did get in that show or who did get that grant. And then it helps you kind of place yourself. And, you know, so there's, it's not, it's like the rejection letters are hard, but they come with a lot of additional information. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Um, we have the show, the opening receptions uh, very soon. Imminent. So, yeah. But. <laughs> Thank you for taking time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, such a pleasure. And, um, you know, I am, like, super passionate about um, helping artists, you know, young or emerging or Mm -hmm. aspiring artists along their way. So um, it's a privilege to to speak about it. Thank you very much. Today's episode is brought to you by Balulu Studios. 
Bululu Studios is a small event space located at 3131 Bull Street in Savannah, Georgia. Conveniently located near the SCAD Shed Building, Gulfstream Digital Labs, and Montgomery Hall. Bululu Studios can be rented out for a variety of events, and it's the perfect environment for SCAD MFA thesis shows. For more information, visit bululustudios.com backslash event space. That's B-U-L-U-L-U studios.com backslash event space.